We'll return in our Bibles this morning to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, the third chapter, the second part of verse 16. Last Sunday, the sermon was entitled Fruitfulness Under the Curse. And today, the title is Marriage Under the Curse. We'll be looking at the latter part of verse 16, but I want, for the sake of context, especially those who may be just joining us, to begin reading at verse 8. And I'll read through verse 16. This is the word of God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now our text for this morning. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Our Father, we come to you willing to be instructed from your word, whatever it holds for us, and we are confident that as you bless the preaching, it will be good for our souls, a blessing to us, and an encouragement in it all, and we pray this once again for Jesus' sake. Amen. So a great crime has been committed there in the garden of God. Uh, The guilty parties, our first parents, have confessed their sin. And we find ourselves in the section of Genesis chapter 3 in which there's a kind of sentencing that's underway. In our Lord's words to Eve, God speaks of the consequences of sin for our homes, our families. That's the sphere in which Eve will have particularly unique gifts to contribute 
So in the first part of verse 16, we saw last Sunday how mothering comes under the curse. This is broader than mothers. It includes fathers in a very real sense. Parenting will involve great pain. First word to Eve is about mothering, but the second word is about marriage and how marriage is going to be impacted by sin. There's going to be strife and rivalry where before there would have only been peace and oneness and mutual support. So that's what we have to consider this morning. Uh, our, our Lord's words to Eve, uh, to all of Eve's daughters, indeed to all of us about marriage. This will be particularly relevant to those who are married, of course. It will be relevant to those who hope to be married, but it will be relevant for all of us who have been observers of marriage and who have seen up close not just the joys of it, the sorrows of it under the curse. We'll look first at the desire of wives, then the rule of husbands, and then the future of marriage, all under the curse. So first, the desire of wives under the curse. This is taken, of course, from that second part of verse 16. Your desire, Eve, shall be contrary to your husband. Some of you have it. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he goes on, but he shall rule over you. The first part of that has been uh, a subject of great discussion and debate. This much is very clear, very obvious. This is a reference to the future of Eve's relationship with Adam. But not just that. All are agreed. This state of affairs that God is speaking of is going to also be true of their descendants in their marriages. And there's something that's unpleasant about it. There's some kind of relational pain that God is speaking of now as he speaks to Eve. That much is clear and beyond debate, but there are some interpretive questions that our text raises, and this is the first one. What exactly is the nature of the desire that God is speaking of here that Eve will have toward her husband or for her husband? The original Hebrew word for Desire is, well, it's very straightforward and it's not very helpful in and of itself. As is often the case, it's simply a word that is rightly, fairly translated desire. And so when interpreters find this and are looking for the significance, the kind of desire, they'll rightly go to other places in the Bible where that word is used. And as it turns out, there's only two other places where the word desire, this word desire, is used. One of them is in the Song of Solomon. Chapter 7, some of you will know that passage, that context, the word desire, as it's found in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, is in a rather amorous context. It's a place where the husband has just been extolling the physical beauty of his wife in somewhat intimate detail, and her response there is to say, verse 10, I am my Beloved's and his desire is for me. So the desire in that passage, it's quite clear in light of its context, is 
Well, it's sexual in nature. It's a reference to physical attraction in the context of a marriage relationship. And so, brothers and sisters, there is a tradition within the church, you should know this, going all the way back to the early church, that sees that as the meaning in Genesis 3.16. That is, as a result of sin, Eve will have awakened in her sexual desire for her husband. As you take that in, I'll just hasten to say that this would seem less strange to you and me if you shared any of our church fathers' view of sexuality in general. I alerted you this back in chapter 2, the view that uh, Adam and Eve in their innocence had no kind of sexual awareness even, much less desire. And uh, many of our early church fathers saw the effects of sin and they were realizing that they were naked as a reference to newfound sexual interest. So that's what God is referring to here. Some of our fathers have put it. I remind you of this, but I don't want you to have the early church father's view of sexuality. I've already covered this ground with you. With all due respect to them, this is contrary to everything that the scripture as a whole says about marriage, and particularly what we learned about marriage in earlier portion of Genesis. Everything about it. Companionship. Sexual intimacy. And the fruitfulness that that would lead to. That's all of God's ordination and his design. So, that's not the right understanding. I submit to you of Genesis 3.16. Happily, there's another place. The same word is used, and it's much closer at hand. It's in chapter 4 of Genesis. Look there with me. It's in verse 7, and Commentators as far back as John Calvin have been pointing out that not only is the word used in Genesis 4-7, but the same expression is used in that place. This is God's words of warning to Adam and Eve's firstborn son, Cain. And after telling Cain that sin is crouching at the door, he uses a metaphor there of sin as a kind of spiritual predator in Cain's life. God says to Cain, or says to Cain about that sin, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It could be translated, its desire is towards you. It wants you, Cain. That's what God is saying. It is a kind of hostile desire. Sin desires to overpower you, Cain. That's very clear in that context. To take control of you, Cain. And then God goes on to say, Cain, you had better not let it do that. You had better master this temptation and sin. Well, it's exactly that same pairing that we're finding in Genesis 3.16. It opens up the meaning of what God is saying to Eve. This new desire that evil now have as a result of sin is simply the desire for control. It will not be a desire for her husband. It will be a desire against her husband, against his headship, against his authority in her life. It will be a desire that will come into conflict now for the first time in his calling 
to rule as her husband. So that's why our Bible translations, if you have the ESV in your laps, have rightly translated it both here in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, your desire shall be contrary. It will be a contrarian desire. So my friends, we're coming to an answer to the question, what's the nature of this desire that God is speaking of to Eve as a result of the consequences of her sin? This is, in effect, what God is saying. Eve, as a result of what you've done, your heart is no longer going to rest easy under your husband's authority. You're going to have desires and ambitions that are now going to be contrary to his. You're going to be at odds with him. We could add it a thousand different ways. But Eve, this contrarianism, if I may speak of it that way, is going to be met with his authority in some painful ways. You will oppose him, but he will overrule you. You will undermine him, but he will still lead you. You will not be happy with his authority, but that authority will remain. Nonetheless, this is a window, a window into a whole world of coming marital woe. It is striking to me that the very first reference to relational strife in the Bible, first of many, 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 but the first is found here. It's in the heart desire that's contrary in Eve to her husband. Thanks to the fall, Eve's going to find it hard to love and respect and follow her husband. So my sisters in the Lord, we need to take a moment this morning to be clear about what God is putting his finger on in your own heart as a daughter of Eve, in your marriage if you have one. I want to ask the question for the next few minutes, what are the indicators of a contrarian desire in the heart of a wife? And I have three such indicators that go from subtle to very much not subtle. Number one, sisters, this contrarian desire that God is speaking of in a wife's heart shows itself first in the inclination to act independently of your husband. Some, as I've read this passage, refer to uh, what Eve is guilty of as acting unilaterally. That is, uh, uh, consulting merely her own judgment. And you would have a hard time finding a conservative commentator on this passage who fails to note this about Eve. As we've already seen, she takes a breath taking initiative and eating the forbidden fruit that's utterly independent of her husband. It's unilateral. Now, I've already said to you, I, some are harder on Eve than I am. 
Uh, some understand the passage to indicate that Adam is standing right there the whole time. They're actually in, uh, uh, as we'd say, spitting distance from each other as Eve takes of the fruit, and that makes Adam look a lot worse, and it makes Eve look a lot worse. I'm not sure that that is the necessary understanding. I rather think that Satan sought out Eve in a more vulnerable and private moment. But in either case, Eve has taken action in the garden of tremendous consequence without any consultation, apart from any direction from her head. And folks, that's a recipe for disaster in any authority relationship. We read about CEOs or heads of large companies, don't we, who are at least in principle subject to boards of those companies and they shoot off their mouths and they make, take action unilaterally and you know what's coming. Conflict with that authority. Pastors who are under authority are undermining that authority when they, matters of consequence, act unilaterally, independent of their authorities. And so it is in marriage. Sisters, uh, in marriage, this can become some of the most pervasive forms of wifely contrarianism, to use the language of our text. It can be as subtle as uh, a wifely absent-mindedness, never considering to ask a husband for his insider direction. It can take more insubordinate form. I'd rather ask for forgiveness than for permission. Do not hear in this, my sisters, some kind of vision for marriage where every initiative has to have a husbandly permission slip. That is not what husbands want, to be sure. There's a whole world of wifely initiative that in the marriage relationship requires no explicit consultation, and you are your, great, your husband's greatest help when you throw yourself into that initiative. So you say, all right, pastor, there's all kinds of things I don't need to consult my husband on. I can take initiative apart from specific direction or input, and then there are other things that don't. How do I know the difference? Well, you know your husband. This is something you're actually very good at, knowing your husband, knowing what he would want to be consulted in. Would your husband want to have some say in that decision, some contribution to that initiative? You probably, if you stop to ask yourself, Know the answer to that. Eve's original sin involved taking an initiative of tremendous consequence that was out of keeping with her husband's headship. Uh, we might say Adam should have been consulted. Contrarian desire in a wife's heart shows itself in the inclination to act independently of your husband. Number two... Contrarian desire in a wife's heart shows itself in unhappiness with your husband's leadership. 
Now, there in the garden, we only see the very beginnings of this kind of desire contrary to a husband in Eve. What would it look like in full bloom? Well, it's not pretty, and it's depicted in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has this particular kind of unhappy wife in mind when it comes again and again to this theme, Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Or verse 19 of the same chapter, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful, or it is sometimes translated nagging, woman. Proverbs 27.15, it, uh, it renders a continual dripping on a rainy day, and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Can I just say I am very thankful? I've not encountered many Christian women that fit that description. Very thankful. That's my testimony. But you know that's a real thing, don't you? And it's not just out in the world. It's also in the church. It's a real thing. And can we agree that would be a fuller and more settled manifestation, what we read of in Proverbs of Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. It's a way that many wives poison their marriages. Not merely by taking initiative away from their husbands, but by being continually unhappy and critical at his initiatives. So sisters of resurrection, this is the reminder that I would make to you today about this form of wifely contrarianism. I've made it before. You can go a long way towards opposing your husband's leadership by simply being unhappy. Psychologists call this passive-aggressive behavior. Punishing someone by withholding something in order to gain something. The Bible just calls it a quarrelsome or contentious or a threatful wife. You can see at least the seeds of this, sisters, in your own heart when you, for example, make your husband defend everything that he decides. When you convey your dissatisfaction at his decisions. When you signal to him how hard it is for you to follow him on this one. Or... Simply go about this biblical duty of submission in marriage with relentless sadness. There are in the church many Christian wives who have the testimony, they affirm their husband's headship, but they take with one hand what they give with the other in unhappiness with that headship. That kind of contrarianism in Christian wives can lead to emasculated husbands. Men who will eventually do whatever is necessary to make a sad wife happy, which is to say give up their leadership under their wives' contrary desires. Sister, I have one more Example of a contrarian desire in a wife's heart is the most extreme. It shows itself in the resolve 
to have control in the relationship. Now, that can be seen in our society at large very clearly, can it not? Wives who, in fact, want a husband who will follow them and who will be a helper to them. In biblical terms, uh, metaphorically speaking, a man made from them and for them, not the other way around, just the opposite of what God has ordained in creation. This is upside-down marriage, biblically speaking. It's what we see beginning to happen between Adam and Eve, Eve striking out on her own, Adam following Eve, and it becomes a settled way of life, a settled paradigm for marriage. This too is a fulfillment in perhaps its most dramatic form. Genesis 3.16, God says to Eve about herself, about her daughters, your desire will be contrary to your husband. Can I point out that this, this is an extreme form of this contrarian desire that is actually against nature. What I've seen in Christian wives over the years has actually been a hunger for wise and strong leadership in their husbands. That's what I have seen. Their unhappiness is often triggered by the imperfections and inadequacies of their husband's leadership, to be sure. So their contrarian desires against his leadership are mingled, this is what I have seen, with frustrated desires for that leadership. We know why this is so. It's because God designed and created women to be their husbands' help meets. Women are wired to be led by men in the dance. It is romantic and marital love relationship. So this I would observe to my sisters in the Lord, godly in their homes. The heart of every godly wife, there is in fact, see this in yourself, sisters, conflicting desires. Isn't that fair? Desire for your husband to take charge, to be your leader, to rule well in your home, and the desire, maybe just momentarily, maybe settled in in certain seasons, to take the reins, to be in control. This, sisters, is what Paul is aware of when he singles out wives for instruction in the New Testament. And all he has to say is, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And many have looked at that and said, why that? One word to wives? It's all about submission? Is that all that being a good wife entails? Well, the answer is clearly not. But Paul knows it's the hardest part. Being a good wife. Because of these desires. Eve spoken to by God about. So we come, as I close my word to sisters, to make the observation, this whole matter is a heart issue, which is to say in Genesis 3 terms, it's a desire issue, sisters. What does a godly daughter of Eve want? 
He wants to help her husband, to include helping him be a good leader, among other things. She wants to follow her husband, to affirm and defend and uphold his leadership. She doesn't want to be in control. She's surrendered to his authority in her life. So that really is the question that God's word to Eve raises for the daughters of Eve. What do you want in your marriage to that man? This is the desire of wives under the curse. Let's look now at the rule of husbands under the curse. So God has identified a sinful desire in Eve in Genesis 3.16 against her husband, but he also has something to say about Adam's response to that desire. And that response, as you see, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now our question is, what's God saying about this behavior of husbands under the curse? Perhaps you know this is a text that's become exceedingly important to the feminist movement in the church. You say, wait a minute, it's a clear reference to husbands ruling over their wives. How can that be key to an ideology that has no patience for male authority in the home? Well, Listen carefully, if you've not heard me walk you through this before, listen especially carefully to this interpretation of Genesis 3.16, very popular the last 50 or 60 years. This is indeed, so it goes, a reference to husbands exerting authority over their wives, but it's the first of its kind in the Bible, and it's not something God intended for marriage. Rather, husbands ruling their wives is just as much fallout from the sin of our first parents as wives being contrarian. You see what that reading of Genesis 3.16 does? It makes the rule of husbands just as great an evil as the contrarianism of wives. Ah. And indeed, feminism has tended to see any and all claim to authority in the home as an abusive reality. God never intended for husbands to claim authority over their wives. That's only what sin brought into the world. Well, that's a reading of Genesis 3.16 that's only plausible when all you have in front of you is Genesis 3.16. If you forget all that we've learned of Genesis chapter 2, cannot, for the sake of time, uh, go back to that, except to say, remember that curious little Ono in God's sixth day, creating everything good, and then looking at Adam all by himself, and saying, ah, not good. Then he creates the helper for him. What was God doing He was, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 2, showing that Adam was formed first, then Eve, to show headship by Adam in his home. Of course, we could go to the Apostle Paul's exhortations 
that are very familiar to us. And if the interpretation I've just represented of Genesis 3.16 is right, then the Apostle Paul didn't get the memo. He's still upholding the abusive patriarchy. And he calls on wives to submit to their husbands. But brothers and sisters, it does so much violence to the rest of Scripture to take that interpretation of Genesis 3.16. It actually robs the roles of authority and submission in marriage of their greatest dignity, which is that their emblems and God's appointment, the authority of Christ in and among his beloved bride, the church. So how should we understand those final words of Genesis 3.16? I think, brothers and sisters, it's a simple statement of fact that God makes. Eve, as a result of sin, you're going to chafe under your husband's authority. But Eve, it's not going to go away. He will rule over you. That's going to be the rub. I have a couple of words for husbands in light of these final words to Eve. Uh, words about what this rule in your home that's spoken of by God in Genesis 3.16, already established in Genesis 2 and everywhere else in the scripture upheld, what that rule should look like. What it should look like especially as you respond to desires contrary to you in your wife. I want you to hear me say two things. Contrarian desires of your wives, brothers, need to be met with authority, but they need to be met with Christ-like authority. When I say they need to be met with authority, I'm paying attention to God's words to Eve. He simply states, he will rule over. He chooses no word there that in any other context needs to be understood as evil or abusive. It's the word he used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So Eve's being told, Adam is going to assert his authority over you. And brothers, that's a rebuke to many of us when we're not willing to do that. When our response, sinful response, to our wives in their sinfulness is simply to accommodate ourselves to that independence and unilateral initiative. Uh, perhaps to placate unhappy wives rather than remaining, presiding over our homes. Uh, it's to follow our wives. Uh, this is unfaithful. That's the main thing. It's not true leadership. Leadership that caves at the first sign of resistance is not leadership, but Brothers, I'll add to that, it doesn't make it easier for your wife, for her to be surrendered to your leadership, to see in you a cowardly response. That only fuels 
fire of many marriages. It, it's a kind of synergy of sin. You're abdicating your authority. Her seeking to usurp your, your authority. I am not inviting here my brothers to some kind of naked appeal to authority or power play. I'll return to that in just a moment. But I am calling brothers to have a wise awareness of how your sin can lead your wife in her own sin. She's struggling to be surrendered to your authority. She needs your love and your sympathy and your patience and your compassion. And she needs your authority. She doesn't need you to be apologetic about your authority or tentative in your exercise or timid about how to lovingly deal with the sins in the relationship. Uh, this is our besetting sin, brothers. To be like Adam there in the garden. The woman you gave me, Lord. You ought to see in Genesis 3.16 a call to men to rule wisely and well in their homes. Uh, every reflex of our society when there's a problem with authority is to say, well, there just needs to be less authority. But God's word to Eve is, Eve, he will rule over you. Now let me say, brothers, contrarian desires of your wives need to be met not just with authority, but with Christ-like authority. It's not obvious yet in Genesis chapter 3, but this role of husbands leading their wives and their families is destined to be this picture of Christ over his church. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, Paul says in Ephesians 5. So husbands are given authority of their wives, but... To be carried out in Christ-like ways. Loving, benevolent, sacrificial. And this is a very good time, I think, to acknowledge that that is exactly not the kind of response that men are known for in marriage. As they deal with these contrarian desires in their wives. Men are known for reaching for their authority in abusive ways and using it against the ones they've been called to love and cherish. Feminists are right about that. They're right to see a long train of abuse of women by men in authority because sin has not just affected our ability to be under authority. It's twisted our ability to exercise authority. So brothers, isn't this the, aren't these the poles, the two poles that we seem to occupy as men in marriage? At one moment, we're abdicating our authority. The other moment, we're in some way or another abusing our authority. Neither is righteous and neither is good for our wives, or for our children. So what does it look like? 
godly exercise of husbandly authority according to the model of Christ. Well, it certainly looks like in all the firmness of your exercise of authority, gentleness. Gentleness. You will not make it easier for your wife to submit to you as you in insecurity perhaps become petty and vindictive and cruel. Elder Tom Warnock died last month. He is one of the men who was elder of the church where I interned in Long Island. He's been elder a very long time. He's the one I've quoted to you before. Who like to say the three marks of a godly elder are gentleness, gentleness, and gentleness. He's with the Lord now. He was a gentle elder. Paul has, rather, Peter has that same concern as Paul. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers may not be hindered. Gentleness, even where your authority needs to be firm, brothers, and selflessness, even in what you insist on as a husband. You will have to insist on certain things. That's the nature of authority. But brothers, don't let righteous insistence on these things be spoiled by selfishness, just insisting on things in order to pad your own comfort, your own well-being. That's not Christ-like authority, which is exercised For the good of the bride, the one you would die for. May that ever be the conviction of your wives, brothers. That as you rule for her, your children, that you're ruling as one who's also giving himself to them. You couldn't have a more robust model of authority than Christ in the church, and you couldn't have a more robust view of love than the same. So that's the rule of husbands under the curse. Can I close by looking thirdly at the future of marriage? And I do this because, well, it's true enough. The future of marriage in Genesis chapter 3, at least in verse 16, looks quite bleak. Indeed, we know this. There's anything that can rival parental pain. In this life, it's marital pain, isn't it? Here's what I'm going to point out to you. It's a simple observation. It's come home to me, though. It's in this present fallen world living under the curse that all the glory of marriage is going to be put on display. There'll be no marrying in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus taught us clearly. What this means is that as much as marriage and family life is hard to do well under the curse, folks, that's also when God intends for it to shine. The brightest. That's how the rest of the Bible will show God doubling down in grace on this particular institution. I'm reminded that when Moses interrupts himself back in chapter 2 
and says in a kind of state of wonder, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. When Moses interrupts his telling of the story of the creation of Eve to say that with an obvious sense of poetry and wonder, he's saying that from the future as we find Genesis, the events of Genesis 3.16. He's actually looking back from generations of living under the curse and saying those wonderful things about marriage. So is Paul, who, as you know well, speaks of marriage not just as the instrument by which God will use to bring about filling of the earth with his image, but also an emblem of the gospel, the love of Christ for a bride, the surrender of that bride to the one she calls Lord. So Genesis 3, in the context of Genesis 2, and the rest of the Bible makes clear how worthy your marriage is to fight for. Under the curse, but God has ordained marriage to be so glorious and such a blessing. He knew that. He ordained it in chapter three, chapter two, what would come in chapter three. So despite all that sin will do to marriage, to family, in a fallen world, it's the home that's going to remain at the center of all God's redemptive purposes. And at the center of the home, be the daughters of Eve in all their redeemed glory. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Those who are living life, O Lord, under this sentence you've pronounced, we take comfort again have given us these words and given us the spirit with them in order that we might with success fight against the attack of an enemy, against one of your favorite institutions, that of marriage. And we thank you for the glory that can be seen in the midst of a world so otherwise dark. Husbands that love their wives wives that submit to their husbands according to the pattern of the gospel. Lord, grant us greater wisdom and zeal and help of the Spirit to fight for our marriages in this fallen world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.